Athlete's secret weapon. Unlock the power in your mind. This is the pledge to hear from sporting champions. Sit back, listen, and release the champion in you. Hi, this is Stuart Walter, and welcome to the Athlete's Secret Weapon podcast. And what an amazing one we have this week. I say that because she's listening on the phone right now, and I'm going to introduce you straight away to Michelle Lee, solo rower, first Australian female to row any ocean solo. Sounds impressive, and now you're going to get some statistics on this amazing lady, what she's done, what she's achieved and the mindset that's needed to do what she's done. This is an incredible story. We've had a bit of a chat before. So uh, let's just bring her on now. Michelle Lee, come on through. <laughs> good morning, Stuart. How are you going? <laughs> yeah, good now. We've got the technical stuff sorted. We're good to go. Yeah. Okay. So we just did a bit of a test before, and my first question was why. So give me a bit of a bio, and I've given you a bit of a brief intro, but just tell people out there listening your position, what you've done, and what inspired you to do this? This is just, well, for many people, crazy. For those people listening in sporting fields um, around the world, um, that they will get you. So, yeah, share your story. Uh, uh, yeah, so I'm 46 years old. I live in Kellyville in Sydney, and um, I was inspired, in fact, by a book. So uh, in 2014, I read a book called Rowing in the Atlantic and it plagued me for two whole years until eventually May 2016, I decided that's it. Uh, in order to get some peace in my head, I have to row the Atlantic. So I thought I'd rather do it than die wondering. And that was my big, you know, big motivator was, uh, you know, the idea that I would die wondering was just not good enough. So I um, thought to myself, I just need to get a little boat. And that led me on a journey where I, you know, actually had to build a boat. Uh, I had to learn to row. So I'm not a rower. I'm so not you're not, I'm not, not actually a rower um, either. So you haven't no, rowed? No, had never rowed in my life, uh, but that was completely irrelevant. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the book which sort of told a tale of, you know, a girl triumphing over adversity was really just, that's what I wanted. So, um, yeah, what else do you do? Pretty go and do it. <laughs> well, what, how would your life be now if you didn't read that book? What would you have done? I'd probably still just be plodding along in a very comfortable, very cruisy, and I often think back to what my life was pre Talisca Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. So, you know, it took me more than two years to prepare there to get to the start line. So yeah. I tried to remember what my life was pre-2000, you know, pre two years ago, and uh, it was easy. My life was so comfortable. It was just such a, a knowing of what every week looked like. My diary was very consistent. I'm a self-employed massage therapist. Yep. I knew exactly who I was seeing on Monday at 5 o'clock, Wednesdays. Like my day and my weeks were so well mapped out yeah. and so predictable mm -hmm. that, um, yeah, I'd probably still be doing that now. <laughs> wow. Okay. So obviously there was that inspiration which created, which created that internal motivation. I'm just fascinated as far as mindset, how people 
get involved in pushing the limits of mind and body because it's amazing how many people are stuck in the comfort zone and they're just scared of challenging themselves. And you've done that. And no rowing, two years later, 5,000 Ks over 68 days, leaving something so safe and comfortable. Um, what? Give us a bit of an insight to what your head was going through in those two years prior to launching. Um, oh, well, I guess the, the fear of the regret yeah. was bigger than the fear of failure and bigger than the fear of not coming back. I mean, yeah. the ocean rowing statistics, you know, it's a very small pool with uh, just over 500 successful rows 250 people have attempted but failed and there are eight deaths. So, you know, we've got 7.4 billion people in the world. It's, it's a very small pool of people that have actually succeeded. Um, and I have to admit that was part of the appeal for me, you know, yeah. to be part of something, uh, I guess, elite. And um, so, yeah, my and, and I must have been at a stage in my life where I was ready to really sink my teeth into something. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I had pushed boundaries before with little things like, mm. you know, triathlons and mud runs and if someone's, you know, said to a Climb Kokoda, yep, I'm there. So I would take on challenges frequently, mm. ocean swims. Um, but, you know, this was by far my biggest challenge ever. Right. So what were the what were the challenges in the actual lead-up to it other than the fact that you'd never rode? What were, yeah, the, there were, what were the challenges? there were so many challenges and so many times I could have given up and just said this is mm. all too hard and, this is why so many people don't make it to the start line. You know, getting to that start line is the hardest. So for me, building a boat, appointing a boat builder, uh, so many things went wrong. You know, I paid way more than I should have for a boat build. Um, and it was a lot of sweat, tears, heartache. Um, so a lot of lessons learnt the hard way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, it, it just, you know, building a boat and uh, budgets blown constantly. Um Having to do a lot of campaigning, door knocking, there's a world I'm not familiar with where I've actually had to knock on people's doors and ask for money, ask for gifts in kind, ask for help. So that was very, very uncomfortable for me. And, you know, the row for me was supposed to signify being independent, being solo and standing on your own two feet, not needing anyone. When this was nothing like that, I learned that I had to include people, that I had to be vulnerable, I had to ask. So, you know, that was a massive challenge for me to overcome. And, of course, you know, learning to row, there's a challenge there. Uh, In the meantime, in the lead-up to it, I took on the world record. So to become the fastest female to row one million metres on a Concept 2, so yeah. if anyone's done any rowing on an indoor rowing machine, they will know that that is extremely boring. And, you know, it ticked a lot of those boxes, building my mental resilience. It, you know, obviously gave me the physiological adaptations that had to take place yeah. for a long-distance seminar slash endurance event. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, it helped me build a profile. So in order to, um, you know, get some credibility, I had to create something. So... I uh, attempted the world record and six months later um, became the fastest female to row a million metres on the Concept 2 and took the world record off a German Olympic rower by nearly 11 hours. So, wow. So uh, it ticked a lot of boxes 
how, how did you keep going in that? Because I can just imagine the repetition and the boredom would do your head in. What what kept you going? Uh, my eye on the prize. Yeah, so uh, keeping a really, you know, I had a very clear objective and also there was a lot on the line for me to complete this successfully because I used to tell myself, if you can't do this in a nice controlled environment, I could turn air con on, you know, all this sort of stuff. Then I said to myself, you cannot do the Atlantic Ocean Road. So that was a, a private deal that yeah. I had going on with myself. Um, so, yeah, there was so much on the line and, you know, the people that helped me do that, you know, I would have friends come in on a Sunday, I had to row for eight hours every single Sunday, six hours every Monday, and it was to an extremely disciplined uh, regime mm-hmm. that I rowed basically, I did 13 sessions a week, and um, on Sunday was my big row, that was eight hours, so, you know, I would have friends call in, they would cook me meals for my next break, and, you know, I had to learn how to keep my calorie intake um, at a level which would allow me to maintain that kind of output. So, you know, I had to learn to eat, digest whilst rowing, etc. And it was the people that extended themselves so generously that also kept me going because I thought I can't let them down. Do you know what I mean? And every time I felt like, you know, just giving up, I thought, you can't. How can you let them down? You know, my Mm. friend Claudine would come and sit with me for virtually eight hours on a Sunday and humour me, chat to me, cook me my scrambled eggs for my next break, fill up the ice bath and, you know, all this sort of stuff. So um, that was a massive motivator. And I took a lot of those lessons across the Atlantic with me. So it built fantastic foundations yeah. for me to draw on when I was doing it tough. Um, and just knowing I can row for 14 hours a day, because that's what my world record looked like. It was 14 hours for five and a half days. Uh, I rode, you know, I had to cover uh, a thousand kilometres. So that was like 268 k's a day I had to row in wow. order to achieve the record. Wow. So any people that have actually been on one of those rowing machines and you're doing that 14 hours a day, five and a half days a week for how long? Uh, well, it was uh, 14 hours a day for five and a half days and yep. that got me the record. Well, that yeah, was the million. Of, that was a million metres, yeah, which is 1,000 k. And, um, wow. It, it was on a pace of 2.30 at about 18 to 20 strokes a minute. So anyone that's sat on a rowing machine, they'll mm. be listening to that go, oh, my God, <laughs> that's mental. And it was mental. It was mental. So what was what was the game plan? Because, I mean, there's certain fundamentals of the human mind that always exist, which is what I'm getting across in a lot of these podcasts and the interviews. So people actually become aware of what it takes. So there's fundamentals that is just incredible that you got to push through so that whole uh, mindset the game that would be why am I doing this I could stop I need to do this no I don't I could stop now no one would know why do I need to do it how did you manage that um integrity is a big thing for me just in my it's, it's just my makeup and it's the whole doing what you you say you're going to do uh, finishing what you start so it doesn't sit well with me to do anything but. And um, so I guess that was something that, you know, was already there in the first place. And I used to tell myself, you know, what doesn't, uh, what doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. (laughs) All those little cliches. Um, And I would give myself little rewards as well. You know, at the end of 
uh, a week or something, I would tell myself that you can go and have a massage or, you know, which at that time for me was really indulgent because yeah. I was very short on time. I was trying to achieve a task in a year. So at the time when I was doing that, I was trying to do it all in one year, build a boat, learn to row, get a record and do the Atlantic row. So I was trying to do that in one year, which is ridiculous is what I would tell anybody that was aiming to do it. I'd yeah. say you need minimum two years mm-hmm. um, to do it. And, you know, in the end it did go over and I didn't get enough funding, so I did have to, uh, you know, go the following year, which for me mentally that was um, that was a big blow. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, it's also not realistic what I tried to achieve. Yeah, so um, coming back to this clear objective, that's one thing that's already standing out, the fact that, you missed your timing, but there was a clear, defined outcome that you're aiming at. So that's what I found. I've just literally just done a Skype session internationally with a with with a person. We're talking about what is the reason why, what's the reason why, and really breaking it all down. So there actually is a clear, defined target that you're aiming for. And that clear, defined target, once you apply a celebration and emotion and a reason and a purpose behind it, it it basically eliminates, I would probably say, 80% of blockages, doubts, um, questioning. So for you, that you reckon that clear objective got you through that time delay and got you to another year? Yeah, absolutely, mm. without a doubt. And, um, you know, just coming back to it all the time and reminding myself of my why. And, you know, my why in a sentence is so simple. Yeah. I just didn't want to die wondering. Yeah. So, um, you know, here I am, willing, able, physically healthy, fit. There was just no good reason not to do it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that sort of, I reckon, Played a massive part, and, and also the whole integrity factor, you know. Yeah. And, and once you verbalise something, once you tell one person, yeah. that's it. You, you now <laughs> have to make yourself accountable. So I find with anything that I do, I've really made my mind up I'm going to do it before I open my mouth because now I absolutely have to do oh, it. Oh, that's, that's fantastic because I do a lot of seminars and workshops internationally and it's the same sort of thing I tell everyone exactly what I'm aiming for and it's when you when you chuck it out there there's a certain level of ownership that you've got to take and you've got to do it because it's just it's out there and that's what I find is look I don't do much with weight loss but a few people I do work with it's amazing they just go yeah I'm on a diet And, and it's so quiet about it they don't tell anyone just in case it doesn't work but yeah, I'm saying to people, yeah. if you've got a goal, you get out there and you do it. I've got a young yeah. kid at the moment, 19-year-old um, golfer, and he said, I am going to be the world number one. And he said, I said it the other night, and I've just gone, that's what makes the champions, is the fact they can have this inner belief and confidence and just go, this is what I'm doing. And they, the first time they've actually broadcast it to the world, and now there's a level of ownership to be seen, to be doing as much as they possibly can to make that happen. So that anyone listening to this, that is critical. Make the decision and tell people what you're doing. If people come back at you like, oh, don't be so stupid, that'll never work, you know they're not going to be there in the end to support you. If other people go, that's awesome, let's do this together, let me help you, how can I help you? That's, and it's that's true. power. It is so true because I, I saw people fall by the wayside yeah. um, and, and sort of drop off. And, you know, they were the ones that were a bit critical or a bit, oh, why would you do that to yourself? Oh, that hurts too much. Oh, 
know, and they're certainly not the people you want to be around. Mm. Um, and um, you actually made my thought go somewhere, and that was, if I can't think of it, <laughs> but around what you were just saying. About, um, about belief and just expressing your end result, your desired result. People fall off, other people connect and support you on this journey. That help you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 well, we came to where I, where I want to be, but it'll mm. come. <laughs> That's right. So the discipline that you've had to do this consistently, I mean, this was all happening prior to you launching the boat and actually doing the physical version. How did you get your head through to the preparation through to doing it physically? Because once you start, you're into it. Did you do much in the way of visualisation or affirmations? What did you do as far as mindset, training, coaching? Yeah, so with the my actual row, I could never mock or mimic the conditions that I was going to be in. So I knew that it was going to be a world of first. Once I get over that start line and, you know, each, each hour we're losing sight of shore, they were the things that uh, I struggled to um, fathom. Yeah. Um, but... What I used to do was just Google the world's biggest storms, um, the world's worst hurricanes in the Atlantic, and I would look at the sea state. Yeah. I would look at what a 20, 30, 40-foot um, wave looks like. I'd be looking at your 20s and 30-knot winds and see what they do to the waves, and then I would imagine my little boat bobbing around, rising and falling, you know, sitting in the crest and being drawn up, you know, to the top and being... Uh, having water crash over it. Uh, so I used to use a lot of visualisation and even just for my daily chores, yeah. I would be you know, visualising meal prep, uh, making water, connecting my autopilot. I would shut my eyes, sit in my cabin and go through all my switches so that I could do it in the dark. I knew exactly yeah. what I feel, uh, what switch did what and uh, just, you know, repack uh, unpack, repack, and go over that so that you just knew where those essential items were that you would need in an emergency. That's fascinating. I I love that whole concept because I'm just sitting here myself just going, they're all the things that not many people would think about as far as not just what you've done but their own sport to visualise everything going wrong in the conditions. I mean, you're talking about 20, 30-foot waves and 30-knot winds and having to prepare meals at the same time. Uh, yeah. And and sleep and live and, yeah, wow. Yeah. And, you know, there's certain things that you can't prepare for, um, but you just have to have strategies. So in the event that I was so panicked and so shit scared and that I would start drawing blanks, I had a ship's manual. So my ship's manual would do step by step. Uh, so I went through all my equipment on board, you know, my batteries, my um, autopilot, my VHF radio. I had word for word the script if I had to call a mayday or if I had to do yeah. a pan pan or ask for assistance from another ship. So I had all of these things written down in checklist format. So it was literally just tick it off as you do, step one, step two, how to operate my water maker, step one. You know, undo mm. the cap, make sure that there's no air in the line. Step two, turn on, you know. So I, um, that was my strategy and I just, I felt better knowing that it was there if I had to use it. Yeah, because the mental drain of doing what you did, 
is another aspect that I don't think many people would understand. Look, I specialise in working with the human mind. I also understand that because I, I test a lot of stuff for myself. So sleep deprivation is massive uh, and how it affects the body and the mind and the, it starts shutting various parts of your mind down. I go back to when I was in sales. I used to drive from Brisbane, which is in Queensland, Australia, to Cairns, which is 1,800 kilometres, um, and I'd do it over two days for work. And then I'd have to work all the way back. But it was 11 hours on the Saturday and then another eight hours on the Sunday. So you're talking about that. And I get to the end of an 11-hour day and you go to a hotel, they give you a, a check-in card to fill in. And it was hard enough remembering your name, your phone number. <laughs> How did you manage that over 68 days and 20 hours, a, 24 hours a day? Yeah, uh, sleep deprivation was in fact my biggest fear. Yeah. And the decisions that you make when you are sleep deprived. So, um, I, you know, I was rowing basically from uh, 5.36 a.m. till 10.30 p.m. Yep. So my total rowing hours were about 14 hours. And um, I would have a 15 or 20-minute nap. There'd come a point in the day where I just couldn't keep my eyes open anymore. Yep. And, I would, and I just knew that you have to lay down, the body needs to rest. Yeah. So I would just stow my oars, lay down on deck, and I never set a timer. Yeah. And I would always wake up between 15 and 20 minutes, and yeah. I would feel a million bucks for doing that. Oh, so, perfect, yeah. um, that was that was one strategy for me, was just to go, okay, at some point today, and I didn't have to do it every day. It's amazing how your body actually adapts. I was really surprised at how quickly you adapt to the environment and the conditions you're in. Yeah. Um, and my sleep period between 10.30 and 5, 5.30 a.m., it was never solid. I would wake up virtually hour on the hour, and again, I never set an alarm. Yeah. And I would stick my head out, have a quick look, open the hatch, check that the wind, you know, if the wind has changed, I might have to crack my autopilot off a degree or two. I would check the horizon, make sure there's no ships um, that I need to alert and say, hey, I'm a rowing boat, I can't get out of your way, so just make sure you know I'm here. Um, and, yeah, I, I, look, that's something that I'd never practised. I did not practise sleep deprivation because I did look into um, how do you train for it and yeah. the, most of the recent studies basically said you don't put your body through the extra stress and practise sleep deprivation, you just do it when you have to. And yeah. One of the studies said, just speak to a new mother. She doesn't practice months of sleep deprivation before she has a baby, but when she has a baby, bang, she just does it. She manages and yeah. she functions. Yeah, because in your apartment, sorry, yeah, go for it. So, yeah, I took comfort in that, that I didn't mm. have to practice and do some mm. periods of, of sleep deprivation. But the one thing that I didn't reckon uh, I was going to have a problem with was isolation and loneliness. Yeah. So I completely underestimated that and I didn't have a strategy because I didn't think it would be my problem. I thought it was going to be my haven and heaven out there. Oh, imagine no one demanding anything of you, no emails to respond to, no telephone calls to get back to, no social media. I honestly thought, oh, that is heaven. And yet by day 24, I started to feel the effects of homesickness, which I've never felt before, so yeah. there was a whole new feeling to deal with, <clears throat> yeah. and not knowing how many more days you have to go. 
So, um, yeah, it was just strange for me to, uh, to learn sort of, you know, things that I thought would be a problem and, yeah. and, and things that I didn't think I'd struggle with were my biggest struggle. Yeah, because that's one of the fundamentals of the mind is the fact that as soon as you start slowing down or stopping, your brain goes back in the past to process. So you've got 45 years of stuff you've been through that your brain was going, oh, here's a great opportunity. So it's got to, it would have been playing massive games with you and processing all the stuff that you've been through in the past, learning from it, understanding it, integrating it, testing it, every little thing in your life, because I know what the brain will do. That that would have been a moment of, as you said, you think, oh, that will be heaven, but then your brain starts unwinding. And this is where a lot of people go in towards what we call masking agents. They don't want to think about the past, therefore they go to cigarettes, drugs, alcohol, food and keeping busy. So that's what we call masking agents because it, all those five things actually take you to that level that you don't actually have to process manually and therefore you think you're actually in a better state. But by not processing it effectively it's just suppressing a lot of that stuff so it must have been like ripping a band-aid off in your head and everything would have come through oh yeah it's amazing where your thoughts go and how you uh reprioritize things that you know we're not important all of a sudden they're like what you want to do when you go home and you think you know it, it has to be life-changing you can't i've decided once you remove all of the distractions of life and you Put yourself in that kind of isolation. You definitely experience life-changing uh, thoughts and you know new priorities. That's uh, yeah, unbelievable, unbelievable. So, Michelle, we are back. For all those people listening, this may sound a little bit different because I had a bit of a technical hitch, and then Michelle and I decided we were going to ignore each other for a whole month. And we're finally back together to finish this off. So, hello, Michelle. Hey, Stuart. How are you going? Yeah, we are good. Thank you very much. And, yeah, just it was fascinating just recapping what we've recorded earlier so this can actually go live. And it's amazing what we spoke of in regards to the vision, uh, long-term focus, things that you didn't expect to happen as part of this journey. I mean, you had all the preparation. As you said, some things went well, other things you couldn't prepare. You didn't prepare yourself for the loneliness. Uh, you couldn't prepare yourself for the conditions because you can't replicate that out in the middle of nowhere with your eyes closed. So it's one of those things. It's it's kind of you have to deal with what you have to deal with. And so just give us a bit of a, a, uh, a brief on the actual rowing itself. Where did you go from? Where did you go to? And how did you generally experience that whole, the difference of what you imagined? Yeah, so uh, 12th of December, we started from La Gomera in the Canary Islands, which is off the coast of Africa, and headed west 5,000 kilometres to finish in Antigua in the Caribbean. And um, it was certainly one of the things I could not fathom, which was losing sight of shore. It was one of the one things that my mind or imagination, it just could never go there. So, mm. you know, it was, you know, go to bed. We rode out of there at sort of lunchtime. Uh, and for the next two days, I could still see land, but it was just getting smaller and smaller. So it was almost like it was giving you the opportunity to warm up to the idea that she's disappearing yeah. and uh, then all of a sudden it was gone 
Um, and my reaction to it, I guess I was probably more comfortable with it than I thought I could be, and maybe that's why it just kept getting smaller and smaller over a period of time. It wasn't just there, blinker an eye, and it's gone. Yeah. Quick, quick question. What did you do at, at night? I mean, you talk about rowing. Do you just wake up and then have to work out where you've drifted to or where you've been blown to? You kind of had a good idea where you would end up, and uh, thanks to all of the latest navigational equipment that we had on board and also the fact that, you know, weather routing now is so good and you have sort of five, six days' worth of weather um, reports given to you at a time so you know what to expect um you went to bed at night knowing that you're going to be getting pushed more north than you want to whilst you're trying to make west um and that was something that yeah getting your head around that was for us quite frustrating in the sense that we didn't get the easterlies we were anticipating or what's typically normal for that time of year so you knew you'd have to make it up somewhere along the way and try to relax with the fact that it's all swings and roundabouts. At the end of the day, when you're, you know, you're covering 5,000 kilometres, um, you had to try not to get too hell-bent on the idea that you're not just getting pushed west. You, yeah. you, know, you had to just accept that, yeah, I am going to get pushed north, but there will be a northerly that's going to push me south. And the sooner you came to terms with that, um, it was almost like removing a stressor. Okay, yeah. Well, that, that's got to be fascinating. I mean, you're talking of we, we, we. Was this? You're talking about being a solo row, but were you as part of a group? Were there people following you? Yeah. So it was. Uh, you know, you're in a race. It's an internationally, uh, international and professionally organised race. So there were 27 other boats out ah, there. Ah, okay, gotcha. Yeah. I never saw them, and the first time I ever saw the support yacht was on day 34 when they came through. They took a few photos, and they kept going. So I saw them briefly on day 34. That was kind of uh, halfway through your race. Pardon? That was halfway through your race. Exactly, yeah. And, um, you know, if we had have called a mayday, then normally you would have been rescued by a passing tanker that would have to divert to come and collect you. Yeah, okay. Well, isn't it amazing that you say you, you less you, sorry you left the visual of the ocean, oh, sorry of land, and it took you two days to do it, but you never actually saw another boat. Yeah, um, as far as um, the other competitors go, I never saw one of them in the entirety of my race from about I'd say the eighth hour by then we were all just needles in a haystack everyone had their own little strategy yeah. you know some were heading directly south for 30 miles some were sort of heading southwest and uh yeah you disappear very quickly because we're so low to the water you know we don't have much freeboard yeah so your um vision your line of sight uh, doesn't go for very far yeah, I was going to say that's that's actually something that I hadn't thought about, and obviously you may not have done either. Thinking all twenty something, how many twenty seven was it boats? Yeah, twenty seven boats. You, you would thought that all twenty seven would be going the one direction in towards the one end result, but I guess that's what I work with a lot of my business people, entrepreneurs, and even with the athletes. Is everything is it's almost inconsistently consistent. You've got that one consistent, which is the end result, but how you actually achieve it could be faster, slower, 
by going one direction, coming back, having blockages, starting again, going harder, going slower. And I guess it's exactly the same physical as it is mental, is the fact that you had a mission and you went for it. Yeah, absolutely. And there were so many, like, outside influences that dictated how you ended up, where you ended up, you know. Um, and I had a great weather out at home that was sort of uh, following it so closely. And he would advise me, Michelle, I want you to go south. I just want you to, next 24 hours, just head south. Oh, so yeah. that I could avoid, um, you know, a weather low or high that was, you know, predicted. And uh, so he was sort of my ears and eyes, and I just trusted everything he said. So that's the thing, you know, when I say we, yeah. I had a team of people back home, uh, we had supporters following it the whole way. So you don't totally feel alone, knowing that you can pick up the sat phone yeah. and you can have that conversation. And we've just lost Michelle, just one moment, I'll get her back. And we are back again. Michelle decided she was going to hang up on me because obviously I asked it's a tough question. No, typical <laughs> typical mobile phone coverage technology. And, look, technology loves me. It's, it's funny that we're just talking, Michelle, about how things change and how you have to adapt. And I think this is, recording is a classic example of that. We've dropped out. We've missed each other for a month. We've gone backwards and forwards. We're back here again. Your phone drops out and we've got – another 29 minutes before you have to go and run off and feed someone's chickens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's let's get back to the whole um, support team and network and the fact that you can actually, even though it's a solo row, you're still relying on a team for information, advice. Okay, start again. Where are we from there? Um, yeah, so just knowing that I was supported gave me comfort, you know, and in the times when I was doing it tough, it was those supporters where I found strength to push through the challenges, you know, mm. because I then thought it's now about those people, the people that have sacrificed so much to get me where I am, whether they, you know, donate their time, their expertise, their gifting kind, their goods, whatever. So it was thanks to the supporters that I was sometimes able to push through a tough moment or mm. a period of time where, you know, you're sort of wondering where to from here. So I found I had to just remove it from myself yeah. and then put it back on others and, you know, sort of remember that this is the smallest token of appreciation that I can give is to finish it for these people that have helped me. Yeah, absolutely. So what's... What was the go? What was it like in those last few days? Because um, you didn't know how long the race was. You just knew time and distance, didn't you? So what was just fast track towards the end of it? How were you feeling? What was the go and what was going on? Oh, massive morale booster. Knowing, yeah. you know, you get closer and closer and all of a sudden, you know, you've got two days left of rowing and the end feels real. It feels like it's now a possibility. Up to that point... I felt like anything could happen. Mother Nature could have a little hissy fit on me. Um, you know, my mental health was uh, in question with myself. I was mm. nursed the toothache, the earache, and the things breaking. So yeah. I was getting quite concerned about myself mentally. And um, finally, yeah, within the two-day sort of mark of reaching Latin,
And again, we are back. Let's see if we can ride this through to the end, Michelle, just like you were doing. We've got a sense of hope that we can make this episode complete before you hang up on me again. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so you were just saying you're coming towards the end. You've got this new motivation. You've got this new drive. You've made it possible with the help of everyone else. Yeah, Give us that last-minute wave and ride into the shore. Pure joy and relief. They were, like, the two things that I remember the most. And uh, then it, it equaled feeling safe again. You know, I just was so looking forward to feeling safe. And as soon as I saw land, I started to feel safe again. Yeah. Um, so they were the big things for me, that just sheer relief. And I knew as soon as I take that last stroke, my healing will begin. My spiritual, mental, physical healing will begin at the last stroke. Fantastic. And did it? What was it like when you just stepped foot on land again? What was was it? Emotion? Was it overwhelming? What What was that experience? It was an overwhelming feeling of relief, absolutely, and. Uh, and I think the sense of accomplishment that came in the weeks after, I sort of still couldn't believe I'd done it. And, it, you know, it's potentially or possibly still taking, um, taking its time to sink in fully and uh, to absorb what you've just done and accomplished. So it was just relief. Fantastic. So, yeah, sinking in is probably not the right word, but we'll use that one. So yeah, give us a bit of a rundown on the Michelle Lee now. What's what's the next adventure? Because I know you've been flat out. I see it all on social media. There's interviews. There's, hey, tell me you're going to do a movie. Go on. You know you're going to do one. <laughs> um, yeah, look, at the moment it's recover. So yeah. I've got a lot of rehab to do. You know, we lost a lot of strength out there. In fact, I've lost a measured 50% in strength plus uh, loads of mobility, so I have to rebuild, which I anticipate will probably be a good, you know, 6 to 12 months to get back to where I was. But also um, I probably have to do another ocean because I know that I didn't do this one as well as I could have because of the experience. You know, there's no other way to get the experience other than to get out there mm. and do it. So I need to uh, tweak and refine my boat. There were a few systems that just didn't work well and they need refining. Um, and plus also um, myself, you know, there was stuff that I learned out there that now I can take across on another journey. And I'll have a completely different journey, I think, and uh, I would even consider taking somebody with me this time. So mm -hmm. that hum humanity and uh, human kindness is something that I missed a lot, being able to, you know, fill up somebody's drink bottle for them or make a meal for somebody or have a cup of tea made for me. Those are the things I missed the most in terms of human contact. So I would consider doing this as a pair. Yeah. And... Um, and then in the immediate now, hell, let's get this story out there and let's try and motivate and inspire the younger generation and women especially to uh, start thinking you can and you will. You know, we're capable of so much more and I've learned that by doing it, you know, pushing boundaries, resetting challenges and uh, raising the benchmark, raising the ceiling and there's only one way you can do it and that's by continuously stepping outside of your comfort zone um, never get comfortable 
being comfortable. Yeah. You need to keep pushing those. And it's, to me, it's like a muscle. You just have to keep applying the stimulus. Yeah. As soon as things start to feel a bit cruisy, go and pick something else that's a bit, oh, you know, a bit intimidating or a little bit frightening. Yeah, perfect. You commit to it. You verbalise it to somebody because now you have to apply integrity. You have to do it now because you've told somebody. So that's a big thing for me. It's actually tell someone. Well, yeah. now I live with integrity, so I now have to do it. Um, and that's a motivator and driver for me as well. Um, and the yeah. other things I tell people, you know, commit, verbalise it, do it. Um, get comfortable being uncomfortable. Keep setting little tasks hmm. uh, that are forcing you outside of that comfort zone. Yeah, and, and get the team of specialists around you because you were saying that, you couldn't have done it, even though it's a solo road. You couldn't have done it without the people around you, the specialists, the support people, the support vehicles. Without that, it, it's it's not possible. Mm, that's right, and you know, anticipate or try and imagine. I and I, it sounds negative, but I always look at worst case scenario. Yeah. And then I work backwards from there, and I look at worst case scenario and think, okay, if that was to happen. Mm. What is the strategy? So I had several strategies in place. I had, um, you know, like you said, the team of people. I seeked help before I left on relaxation techniques or anxiety techniques, overcoming anxiety, you know, and I used yeah. EFT, I used some tapping, I used breathing, uh, I used visualisation a lot before I left in yep. order to help prepare. Mm-hmm. And these are the things that, you know, just continue to build your confidence in in yourself and you, that's your toolkit right there. Absolutely, yeah, because your greatest asset obviously is, is is your mind because your mind or your imagination actually fires thoughts and thoughts create actions which create outcomes. So if your outcomes aren't what you imagine, you've got to look back and go somewhere there's a blockage somewhere between imagination and results. Uh. So it is. It's a fascinating journey, and I'm, I'm thinking your your journey already because, I, like I said, I've started seeing it a lot on social media. Is the fact you're actually out there now through inspiration, not motivational speaking, but it's more inspirational speaking, sharing your story with people out there that can potentially leverage themselves up to achieve what you've done to find their own inner motivation. So I'm I'm, I'm guessing that's where you're you're naturally flowing to now. Yeah, and I think too, people can relate to me because I honestly had no elite background. I was not an athlete. I certainly was not a rower. Um, and I've proven that you can do it. And that was just by following a plan, um, keeping your eye on the prize, having that clear objective and the, you know, what is my end result? I had to, you know, sometimes remind myself of that when the going got tough or when the challenges were, you know, dumped in front of me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was two years of commitment and hard work and there's no other way. It's just persistency and consistency. That's what is going to get you there. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. So you're out there now, you're, you're showing the world. I guess there's probably a TV show, a book, a movie or something in there. But, <laughs> but Michelle, I am going to say thank you at that moment. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I... I, I can't even imagine what you went through. But, look, so, yeah, thank you very much for doing that through, I guess, the decision to step up and do it. And what, what's one last message? What is it for everyone out there? Start 
thinking you can and you will. That's the mindset shift that you have to get into. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. So thank you. Thank you for everyone listening. You can catch up with Michelle. I'm sure she's everywhere on social media. Where Where are you? What's the best way? Michelle, is it social media, Facebook, yeah, Instagram? Yeah, social media, Facebook. If you go onto Facebook and look up Michelle Lee or Different Worlds, Michelle, either one will lead you to uh, my story and some regular posts and updates and blogs. Fantastic. And I'll actually put this link up on the introduction and the um, show notes. So, Michelle, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. And I will chat to you before your next adventure. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Stuart. You are very welcome. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Stuart Walter and the Athlete's Secret Weapon Podcast. We appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn. To connect with Stuart, find him at Stuart Walter ASW on Instagram, Elite Mindset Institute on Facebook. Watch these podcasts on Stuart Walter's channel on YouTube. If you have questions, would like the opportunity to work with him or to book him for events, email Stuart directly on Stuart at EliteMindsetInstitute.com.au. Music and voiceover provided by SLT Live Productions. More information at sltlive.com.